Hello, welcome back. It's episode 82 of The Passive Hang. Today, very excited to welcome Simon Takor on the podcast, who is the founder of Ancestral Movement, which is a study of human development through the lens of movement, evolutionary biology, anthropology, comparative anatomy, neuroscience, and whatever else that Simon has experienced over in his lifetime. Simon and I have been connected for a while now and I've had the pleasure of learning from him from a few times, uh, most recently through one of his movement camps, which I've posted about before and was one of the most powerful experiences that I have partaken in. So this movement camp was held in the bush in southern coast of New South Wales. We spent a week out there with no phones, completely unplugged, just time to practice the whole day but it was the environment and the setting the whole group energy that Simon modulated that really provoked something profound and a sense of wonder that I experienced throughout the whole week that's the only way well really the best way that I can put it so I was really interested in discussing and debriefing that whole experience with Simon today and I also had quite a few points about the way that Simon both presented his material and his material itself. So we dig into that today. A lot of great, great content and information for you guys. I hope you guys enjoy. Please, I really urge you to check out Simon's YouTube and also his website. That's at ancestralmovement.com and otherwise we can get stuck into the conversation. I am very pleased to welcome Simon Takor on the Passive Hang. It's only been, I was going back through my email, Simon, you know, since 2020 when we were first really? trying to <laughs> tee this up. <laughs> So it's only been a few years before I finally got you on here, but welcome. Welcome to the Passive Hang, Simon. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. It's a a special one for me because you've said that you haven't done a podcast for a while, but then I've been taking a little bit of a break as well, um, just because I've been focusing on some other things, you know, uh, teaching a bit more regularly um, uh, and some other sort of life things. So it's uh, an exciting time to connect with, you know, I guess that I've been wanting to, to connect with for a while, but it's not like we haven't connected. We've been, um, we've been uh, exchanging um, through, through these years, uh, such as what I want to share on this podcast. Um, recently, I went through to one of your movement camps earlier this year, and we spent a week together in the bush, which was amazing and do want to get stuck into that. But first off, I probably just want to um, ask you about, uh, you know, you're well-known or most well-known for your concept of ancestral movement. And so I wanted to just get your take on how you explain that to people at the moment. What What is ancestral movement? <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, cool, man. It's um one of those things where, like, when people ask me, ask me what I do and I go, oh, yeah, I, 
and teach a bit of movement stuff and a bit of meditation stuff. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, and we also do like some survival skills stuff and bush tucker and, um, you know, nature awareness and blah, blah, blah. And then I kind of get a bit of a far off look in my eyes and go, okay, where do I begin? Where do I begin with this? And it's, I guess, um, I guess the idea is um, exploring the evolutionary origins of different aspects of human movement and human consciousness and human behavior and so on. So it's like um, almost applying or looking at movement practice, I guess. And like, you know, it's funny when we say movement practice, because for me, like meditation practice is a form of movement practice, like sitting, breathing, observing the body, like it's all embodied practice, but like looking at um, human movement practice or human movement through the lens of evolutionary biology. And then um, also and sorry to sort of bust out all the ologies, but like evolutionary biology and then biological anthropology. I'm not sure if you are really aware of what that is, but it's like it's the study of human behavior from the perspective of a primatologist, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, you know, so it came to me through like always doing all these different movement practices my whole life and studying yoga and studying martial arts and, you know, all these different things. Um, But then always in my own life, I always had this, have always had this fascination with um, human origins and like, you know, where do we come from? And this realization that like, you know, writing's only been around for a few thousand years and the human species has been around for, you know, in our modern form, hundreds of thousands of years, but then in pre, pre-modern pre forms for millions of years and, and that, that whole, whole history is just this great mystery. And so even as a kid, I was like completely like fascinated and trying to be like, where do we come from? How did this stuff come about? And like, oh, these ancient ruins. And you go, wow, they're super ancient. And then you go, oh, they're only 3,000 years old. Mm. And then you go, oh, man, there's hundreds of thousands. So I've always just been fascinated with this like deep origins kind of perspective, like deep time, like trying to, trying to grapple with the fact that like we're born into this world at this like very deep into this extremely long story and then we have to try and make sense of the present day and the present moment and why am I like this and why is our culture like this without really understanding the context and where we come from Mm. and so in my life even as a kid I've been trying to like understand what is the context that got us here in order to help us understand where we are now. And so um, I was like trying to think about things like yoga and going, or, you know, how does yoga, like, it's like, okay, yoga comes from India and it's like, you know, there's written traditions of yoga that go back like 1500, 2000, maybe if you stretch it through the oral traditions, two and a half thousand, three, four thousand years old. But then how does that, how do these skills relate to like ancient, ancient, ancient pre-humans living in, you know, like early humans living in the forests or, Mm. 
living through the ice age and stuff and you start to discover things like well that ancient humans lived through ice ages that lasted for thousands of years and there's a lot of evidence showing that they that in some cases in many cases they did so without clothes and so you start to discover that like certain like advanced skills from certain cultures mm like the highest level skills of yoga and stuff that potentially a lot of them, like, you know, the inner fire from the Tibetan yogis and that sort of thing to the ability mm. to warm the body up and Wim Hof and all that. And you start to go, Oh, some of these like super advanced high level skills in particular movement traditions are potentially just things that all humans used to be able to do out of necessity. Mm. And so the ancestral movement, the basic idea of it is exploring things that are innate discovering things that are innate in human beings because of our history. <clears throat> and so the way it kind of grew, the way it kind of grew in me was like firstly looking at humans as primates. That was always my that was always my thing. Even as a teenager, even as a young kid, I was like, oh, humans are apes. Isn't that interesting? And then looking mm -hmm. at all the things we do, how we scratch our heads, how we sit around, how we, you know, cuddle and wrestle and all this and going, oh, humans are apes. And you can look and go, oh, it seems like about 90% of our behavior is identical with that of apes. And so then in my movement practice, as a, you know, in my, in my late teens, early twenties, I was, uh, you know, I did judo as a kid and then I did yoga and I was doing um, Chinese martial arts by the time I was 20. But then in my own practice, I would practice what I called monkey body, which was like, a kind of mix of me playing around with capoeira concepts and um, and then also like the tumbling and rolling methods that I learned in Japanese martial arts, like mm -hmm. in judo and aikido and stuff. And so this mix of cartwheeling and rolling and tumbling and, and then playing in trees, and I called that my monkey body training. Mm. And I thought of it as like the antidote to all the like postural work and things that you'd get from yoga and yep. all this sort of like – like the, the postural and movement prison that um, modern culture puts us into. And I was like, oh, monkey body training is the way forward. Um, but then later on, I started to discover other patterns in my body, which I was like, hey, this is this doesn't feel like monkey stuff. This feels like there's a worm inside me running mm. from my mouth down to my butthole. <laughs> and that's super weird and it's like and it feels like there's an aspect of my consciousness which is deeper than this like eyes ears and nose and this guy simon and this monkey stuff it's an aspect of my consciousness which is only concerned with eating and digesting and defecating and moving through the world smelling out and chewing stuff up and pooing it out and so i was like oh okay so there's not just a monkey body there's a worm body hmm. and then you know studying more and more evolutionary evolutionary biology and going, oh, of course, there's also a fish body because we're evolved from fish and the spine mm. has all of these movements contained in it which are still the movements of fish, like lateral undulations and movements following the head and the eyes. And so I was like, and then it started to just sort of like, you know, like tick away inside inside my my mind over the years and my body, and I was like, oh wow, it's like okay, fish body and lizard body because of course we're four limbed creatures, and all of us four limbed creatures on the planet Earth are all evolved from the same ancient four limbed sort of 
the transition point between fish and lizards. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, so then that was when I started calling it ancestral movement. I stopped calling it monkey body. Mm-hmm. And then when all of this started to really come together in my mind, I was like, oh, ancestral movement. It's like there are layers of anatomy which are in our in our body the layers of the the anatomy of the worm tube the digestive tube the anatomy of the fish body like the head going down to the tail and the spinal column and then the anatomy of the lizard body where it's like a rib cage and four limbs and hands and feet on the ends and then a mammal body and then a primate body and then a human body hmm. and so then I was like okay there's layers of anatomy there's layers of movement patterns associated with that anatomy and then there's layers of like you could say consciousness or you could just say like nervous system where it's like the the body the anatomy the physiology the nervous system the sensory systems where all of these layers are not just in us they're layers which are adapted to different aspects of the world outside. Hmm. So we've got layers of our of our of our body and our anatomy which which are adapted to life and to moving in water. Layers which are adapted to crawling on the ground. Aspects of our of our anatomy and our consciousness which which are adapted to moving through trees or climbing around in trees. Hmm. Um, you know, aspects of our sensory systems which are like when you scan through the forest, your eyes will automatically pick out berries you know mm-hmm. what i mean they'll the they'll they'll you'll if you scan through a forest your eyes will zoom in and focus on berries and it's like i wasn't looking for berries but my mm-hmm. eyes are picking berries out of the environment it's like because i've spent my ancestors have spent hundreds of thousands and millions of years in forests like scanning for berries so all of these sorts of things where it's like okay ancestral movement is 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 the exploration of the evolution evolutionary history of a human and then i guess what's different about ancestral movement to some of the sort of paleo kind of stuff is it's like yeah man hunter gatherer stuff is awesome and next level and like spending time researching hunter gatherer lifestyles and cultures and you know parenting methods and and movement skills is super valuable, super, super, super valuable. And all of those basic skills of like running, jumping, crawling, walking, learning mm-hmm. to stay still, following animal tracks, learning how to make fire, foraging for edible um, edible plants and all that stuff. Hell yes, I'm so into it. But then with ancestral movement, I'm really into going even deeper than that and going, no, but there are, we have movement patterns innate in us which are much older than the human species, Hmm. you know, like even just play and wrestling and climbing, like climbing is evolutionarily in our lineage, much older than walking, you know, and what Hmm. you'll notice is like small babies, some very, very small humans can climb before they can walk because climbing is crawling on a, it's crawling on a slope. You know? I, ne- I never thought of it that way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you see, there there's all cool videos on YouTube and stuff of babies at bouldering gyms, and they can do epic climbing, and they totally can't walk. Mm-hmm. You know, so so going that okay, there's all these movement we have so much in us which is older than older than human, older than the human species. 
And by exploring those aspects of ourselves through movement, like exploring spinal undulations with the awareness with the with the awareness that these spinal undulations, like some of them are part of the mammalian lineage, but then the lateral undulation is so much older. And then you if you practice lateral spinal undulations and observe nature and you see lizards like goannas and snakes crawling with these lateral spinal undulations, you watch fish swimming with these lateral spinal undulations, they get us in touch with aspects of ourselves which are hundreds of millions of years old hmm. and which we share with all of these other creatures on the planet. So, you know, if you start practicing and thinking about being a hunter, like like our lineage of hunter-gatherers and like hmm. modern humans living in urban environments or agriculture only being a few thousand years old, but that's layered on top of two million years of hunter-gatherer existence. And so you explore hunter-gatherer movement practices and cultural practices and survival skills and things. And that makes you helps you connect with this really massive, beautiful, long human lineage. And that's amazing. But then when we connect with all these other movement patterns innate in us, it connects us through to what some people call deep time, you know, where you start to get this sense of like, oh, our family, our lineage have been here since the very beginning. It's, we didn't just magically pop up two million years ago and say, oh, now we're humans, here we go. It's like, no, we've been here for hundreds of millions of years all the way back to the ancient oceans. Hmm. And so for me, that's like um, this incredible... It's just this fascination which won't leave me alone, this thing of deep time and going, wow, we've been here for so long and our current human form is just the, it's like this tiny little bit of icing on the cake. It's this tiny little sliver of of magic on top of this huge, huge, huge past. And then what's really interesting, if you go back to the hunter-gatherer thing, is realising that, yes, hunter-gatherer cultures all run, jump, swim, forage, carry shit, like climb in trees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But hunter-gatherer cultures also all, as far as my research has shown, all dance and sing and physically perform the movements and sounds and songs of all of the creatures in their environment with their bodies. Mm -hmm. And so this practice of using our bodies to take on the shapes of all the creatures around us and to take on the shapes of trees and weather and to make the sounds of all the birds and all the all these things is just as much a part of our movement history and our and what it is innate our basic fundamental movement skills that's just as much just as important as running and walking you know what mm. i mean like physical storytelling with the body and taking on all the shapes of nature is um is this fundamental human skill, which in my opinion is overlooked or underappreciated by mm. some of the sort of paleo natural movement, move nat type, type methods. Mm -hmm. And then when we do those practices in nature, it doesn't just help us get in touch with our own body. We start to then experience nature differently. We start to feel like you know when we when we feel how our bodies are adapted to moving in different sorts of terrain then as we walk through that terrain 
we experience it completely differently. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk through the bush and and all the little edible things start popping out, all the materials which were useful for making fire start popping out, everything that's climbable starts to like pop out. You know, like if you're doing animal tracking, the tracks start to pop out and show themselves to you and all these sorts of things. So it doesn't just um it doesn't just teach us about ourselves, it teach us teaches us about how we're like part of the world. Here I am. I'm just waffling, man. This is a big, this is honestly, it's like when people say, what's this ancestral movement stuff? And it's like, oh, fuck, man. It's like, it's basically about how we've been here since the beginning of time and we're like evolutionarily like uh, adapted to like be like constantly reading all of the language of nature all the time and in constant communication with all the animals and all the plants all the time. And then I just start ranting, (laughs) but um, Uh, yeah, that's a little, you can see it goes around and around and around and around and everything feeds into it. So it's like the evolutionary origins of human movement and then exploring how that is either encouraged and expressed or suppressed in different cultures mm-hmm. you know every culture has got its beautiful unique unique things where it pops up and you go oh okay spinal waves show up in this culture in this way and like the spinal waves show up in in this other culture in this other way a big part of again how it evolved or how it grew in my life was like i would explore these traditional practices mm-hmm. and then i'd go off in the bush and do my own training and certain things would start coming through. A lot of the spinal wave stuff would just emerge from my body. And then later I'd discover the identical spinal waves, which I had discovered in mm-hmm. my own practice. I'd discover them in like dance forms from the Caribbean and other dance forms from the Middle East and other things from like distant places in Africa. And then and then going, oh, isn't that interesting that the same things are popping up? Mm. all around the world in different cultures and then go, oh, but that kind of movement is explicitly discouraged in England or Mm -hmm. completely, completely discouraged in Japan. You know what I mean? Except in really certain circumstances. And so going, oh, there's all this stuff that's innate Mm. and it's almost trying to burst out of us all the time. But then our cultures put a lid on it and say, no, 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 just this much just this much here, just this much there, because it's kind of like we're terrified. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we're terrified of what we are and where we come from and all of this like animal kind of stuff. It's like, yeah. So anyway, that's, um, that's enough of a kind of weird answer (laughs) for you. I love it, Simon, you know, um, I wish I had a short version. I don't yeah. think there needs to be a short version, you know. That's yeah. what we're here for, you know, to yeah. to hear the thoughts um, as raw as they are. But, you know, you mentioned uh, at the end here about this, um, like, cultural restraint that's imposed upon us. And this is what I kind of wanted to follow uh, up on asking you about was, um, you know, even earlier on, you, you yourself were exposed to all these um, different practices that you um went into such as yoga you know you mentioned judo i know you've um uh done a lot of chinese internal martial arts as well um and then there's this idea that you know sometimes when you join these schools you have to you know follow the school way 
And that's similar, like you're saying, like if you're in Japan, just naturally you'll act in a certain way and you'll become sort of culturally restrained. So can mm. you speak a little bit more on how for some reason, you know, you weren't so culturally restrained, um, even though you were exposed to these practices quite quite young. Like what what how did you make the leap to just start playing around with these things and start, you know, start start piecing together your own um foundations of, you know, this ancestral movement practice, which what mm. I really enjoy about it is you always seem to have a very high appreciation for for everything. Um and you sort of step beyond the dogmas of, you know, sometimes people might have a certain way of doing things or, or rules, but you can still appreciate why they would do it. But you, you, you also mm. go try and link it together with, with other things. And I really, yeah, that, uh, I, I really enjoyed how you never put anything down. You always had like a, an appreciation for something, but you're kind of like, also like, Oh, you know, they do it this way, but you know, I'm going to choose to do it this way. Um, mm. just because, you know, I'm, I'm choosing to do it this way. You're always quite, quite clear about that so yeah, i just wanted to hear you speak a little bit more on on this this idea of the cultural restraint or barriers yeah um i mean i guess for me like maybe a little bit of it comes out of being um of like mixed heritage and so i grew up in new zealand in the south island in a town called dunedin but my dad's from North India and my mum's from South Australia, Irish heritage. Um, and so, you know, both my parents are weirdos um, who both sort of got together fleeing their respective, like, you know, a bit of cultural repression on both sides. You know, mum grew up like um, in a Catholic family and, um I think she's sort of come to appreciate some aspects of that later in life, but she um, really had to like rebel and flee. And like, you know, she was sort of punished for wanting to go to university, not by her family, but by the the rest of the sort of Catholic society. They were like, you're a girl, you should just learn how to sew and make food and be a good housewife. And you should feel guilty about everything all the time. And, and she wanted to go to university. And, and so, you know, she, essentially escaped from Australia and went off around the world and went to university and stuff. And my dad was like, um, similar, like he, um, left India, um, because he didn't want to get pushed into a, an arranged marriage by his parents. And he's not against arranged marriage in principle, but he was, didn't want to be put in that box. And so, you know, they got together in, in Canada and then my, my brother and I just grew in this household that was like, essentially I was never able to fit in, in New Zealand, you know, it was like always like I could never like all, all the, my, all the mainstream stuff, all the shows that the other kids watched, I wasn't allowed to watch. And like, you know, all the foods that the other kids were eating, like I was coming with these weird Indian sweets and like all that sort of <laughs> stuff. So never fitting in. And so maybe culturally being a misfit kind of helped, but also like, you know, we traveled to India like multiple times when I was very, very small. And, and mm. so I had an idea that like, oh, life in New Zealand was normal and I desperately wanted to fit it and couldn't. But, like, life in New Zealand was normal, but I knew always from the very earliest age there were lots of cultures around and everyone had different ways of doing things. Um, and then I was, yeah, exposed to yoga early on and 
always into martial arts and whatnot. And then I guess like what really got me experimenting um, was uh, I think the combination of being exposed to some of these traditional practices like yoga and martial arts and things, but then also like when we moved to Australia when I was 15 and then before that being in, in Dunedin, but anyway, spending lots of time in the bush, honestly, hmm. and and then having this curiosity about the evolutionary origins of things. And it's like, okay, so yeah, like I'll run around in the bush, you know, chopping down things with my stick and playing Lord of the Rings and whatnot as a little kid. And then later on, um, you know, doing like just, I think just being in nature puts a lot of things in perspective. It's like, oh, you're studying martial arts, but then you're, if you're out in, out in nature and like a lot of the ways of moving, which you can practice in a hall on a wooden floor, it just doesn't work the same way in the mm. bush. And it's like, yeah, okay. You do your, you do your yoga. A lot of yoga just, it's really apparently like when, I don't know, it's like you do it in a room and it's like, yeah, okay. You do the stuff. But then when you're out in nature and it's like, the shapes of nature are different. Like they're at least the, the places in nature where I was, it's all like squiggly and wriggly and rocks and, you know, all twisty and curvy and things. And so this idea of the, the animal body was kind of in there for me really, really early on. And the idea that like the postural rules certain rules are really applicable for meditation. For example, it's like you want to learn to meditate as soon as you start trying to seriously meditate for more than like five minutes at a time, you realize that physical discomfort is a huge factor. Hmm. And so you've got to work on your posture, you know, you've got to work really, really. And then it's like, if you want to start meditating for an hour or more, which I did, I was always drawn to meditation, even from the age of like four. Mm-hmm for some reason. Um, and it's like, okay, you got to work on your posture. And so like, I had that thing of like, I need to develop a perfect meditation posture so I can sit completely still and utterly comfortable for long periods. And it took so long, but then it's like, you know, you fall in that trap. If you just do one movement art, like if you just do yoga or you just do Tai Chi, and you start thinking, oh, I must maintain this certain posture all the time. Mm. Like I sometimes call it like Pilates disease. <laughs> you know, if if someone does a bit of Pilates and they're not an actual mover, mm. then they start thinking, oh, neutral spine, keep the belly in, you know, lift your lift your pelvic floor and always be correct, always be correct. Oh, am I moving correctly? And there's so much tension involved in that. Mm. And then you go out in the bush and it's like, okay, try and move quickly through the bush. And it's like, man, you just got to let your body do its thing. Mm. You know, so there's this idea that, oh, the body already knows what to do in certain environments if you can let it do it. Um, yeah, and so um, I kind, I guess I kind of worked out like fairly young that it's like none of these movement traditions had all the answers, that they were all sort of culturally specific and then like specific to their 
kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was super lucky to be exposed to capoeira um, reasonably early on in my late teens when um, when uh, Tekken 2 came out. And I was just like, what's that? And it's like, oh, okay, it's breakdance fighting, but it's like, oh, it's an actual art, capoeira from Brazil. And then I encountered a capoeira teacher um, who was visiting, who who taught, you know, several friends of mine in Canberra and started learning it and, um, you know, started practicing the moves. And then I, as a, as a person who loved messing around in the forest, having fun, capoeira is like so many of the moves with your hands on the ground, mm-hmm. like it just reeks of movement through the forest. And so, you know, me and my friends would like monkey through the forest doing like doing capoeira moves through the bush. And it's like, Oh, here's a movement art, which makes sense in nature, not so much the high kicks and the acrobatic stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, I won't get into a like, Oh, capoeira Angola is better than capoeira Hegenal argument with you, Fayon. Um, <laughs> but particularly the capoeira Angola is more, in my opinion, more obviously adapted to a kind of jungle environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would I would do these different movement disciplines and I would almost treat one, like I'd treat capoeira as the antidote to a yoga and tai chi. Mm -hmm. With yoga and tai chi, I was always working on my posture and blah, 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 blah. And then capoeira, it's like, forget all that. Go upside down, like do whatever, just move around, pick the gaps and so on. So like um, those things and then that combined with this, um, you know, I was in my, in my, when I finished school and um, when I eventually started university and whatnot, I was studying evolutionary biology and whatnot. And it's just always like, and then I studied like um, physical therapy for many years. So studying heaps of anatomy and physiology and all these sorts of things. But then with the background as a biologist and going, oh, look, all this rehab stuff, it's like, man, knee extensions to fix knee injuries. It's like, okay, like maybe step one, just get the quads working a little bit. But it's like, that doesn't help you navigate a riverbed walking on slippery rocks of all mm. sorts of angles while carrying stuff in one hand while like scanning the environment to try and find the path and things. It's like, no, no, no. If we want to do rehab, we need to, in my opinion, apply these, these principles of like, how does it work in nature? What do the knees need to be able to do in nature? How does that relate to the amount of flexibility and control and stability in the hips and the ankles and the toes and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so it was like the evolutionary ecological perspective really kind of helped me think outside the cultural perspective it's like, okay, different cultures do different things and that kind of makes sense in their context. Mm-hmm. And every culture, it's every culture's job in a way to create some sort of norm that allows us to just relax. It's like, okay, there's a certain amount of expectation of what people will do and won't do. And just having that expectation allows us all to relax. Because if that wasn't there and people were just doing any old thing, we'd be on high 
high alert all the time. It's like, what, what, I don't know. I don't know what these people are going to do next. That's really scary. So it's like you create the expectations and then everyone most of the time follows the expectations and then we can all just relax and do stuff, you know, but it's like, so you've got your cultural expectations, your cultural norms, but then you've got your environmental and ecological sort of necessities. Mm. And part of the exploration that a lot of people are doing these days is going, oh, but when do our cultural movement norms actually prevent us? They make us worse at environmental and ecological things. And we can see that like urbanization and living in cities and things, it's actually, it's actually made us a lot worse at not just moving in nature and being in nature, but it's actually made us worse at even perceiving nature. You know what I mean? Now we just think of it as scenery, as gardens. And it's like all those little things of like our innate ability to smell certain kinds of food and to read tracks and to read and understand the language of nature has massively degenerated, partly because, in my opinion, partly because of the movement norms that have been established by living in urban environments. I'm trying to remember exactly what you asked me and if there's any anything else that's like really important to mention there well, it was on the topic of cultural restraints and i think that was um a pretty good way of putting it especially around like the cultural expectations versus like the ecological or environmental necessities you know that's mm. um that, mm. that 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 you know even you're just taking those two points that already mm. explains a lot in terms of how things have been developed and maybe you know that's sometimes what we skip over in in, in context um mm. and then when we skip over that in context and just take it for what it is then you can get um then you can get constrained by that worldview because that's all, that, that you're just taking that as its face value rather than mm. um seeing all the development from before and and, and appreciating that uh, for for what it is i think so. that's actually yeah that's one that's one thing that's like that i feel is really important to note is like often and it was the same for me often when a lot of us like we start learning movement things and we want to do stuff and then like everyone looks at us like we're weird right it's like okay um if you're if you're if you're not just stretching like the normal kind of stretching if you're doing spinal waves for example or you mm. start moving outside the cultural norms because there's cultural norms for exercise as well, right? And then if you start exercising differently, it's like everyone looks at you weird. And a lot of us have this um, idea initially. It's like, oh, man, like, just don't care what people think. Just don't care what people think. Just do just do it. Just do your stuff. Hmm. Like, why do you care what people think? It's like, doesn't matter. And I used to think like that for years. And like as a young, as a, you know, as a 20 year old, it's not that big a deal if you're doing weird stuff in the park, but like I've, you know, I've had, um, I've had interactions with the police many a time, like living in Japan, living in China, doing movement practice in the park mm. and the police come along and they're like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> Is everything okay here, sir? Kind of thing. And it's like, you know, at least in Japan, it's like I was a foreigner. And so I'd just be like, yeah, I'm just a foreigner doing some yep. weird foreigners kind of stuff. And they'd be yep. like, oh, yeah, you're one of those weird foreigners doing your weird foreigner stuff. It's like, cool. And then in China, China, as repressive as the society is in the you know current times, 
China has this incredible culture of people doing movement practice in the park. Yep. And so my movement practice was a bit different some of the time, even though I was doing lots of Chinese stuff too, but I'd be like, yeah, I'm just doing my, my practice. And they'd be like, oh, cool. And I'd be like, you know, and they'd be like, oh yeah, it's like, it's like Gong Fu. It's like Chinese Gong Fu. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I do Gong Fu as well. And I'm learning Tai Chi and Ting and they'd be like, oh, awesome. But then in Australia, it's changed a bit in recent years, in the last decade or so, but it used to be way worse in Australia where mm. if I was doing weird stuff in the park, particularly if it was just me by myself, that would freak people out, Yeah, like really the, freak people out. You're the crazy guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Totally, right, especially with like brown skin and a bit of facial hair mm. um, and not wearing fitness clothes, mm. you know, um, and so I'd get in trouble. And, I'd, and then I'd be self-conscious and, and, and have, but then still have this idea of like, oh, but you shouldn't care what people think. You shouldn't care what people think. But then I'd find, you know, and I still find it's like if I'm in the bush and there's no other humans around, then I was able to do some really interesting practice and I'd beat myself up that I couldn't do it in public places. But I've completely flipped that idea now. Mm -hmm. I've completely come around to the idea that like, not caring what people think about what you're doing is actually extremely pathological for a human being. It's like we are supposed to care a lot, mm. a huge amount about what the other humans think of us, and to not care about it is like actually like that's what a psychopath is in some ways. It's like if you don't care, there's something wrong with you. And so then it becomes this thing of going, okay, so cultural norms are there for a reason. They're not, which sucks, but they're necessary because if everyone was just going around doing, oh, it's like, oh, you should do whatever you want and like, oh, you should just do whatever you want all the time. And it's like, man, like that's a really dangerous environment because you can't predict what people are going to do anymore. Yep. And so then people are going to be, anxious and and scared and when people are anxious and scared problems start happening and that's why you know oh, if you're doing your weird shit in certain places the cops will come and in some places people will be aggressive and like start being like rah, rah, rah. it's like yeah because you're scaring them by doing some stuff you know it's like oh you're naked at the beach writhing around and it's like oh, i'm just doing my movement practice and it's cool but someone will pass and be like man like yep. i'm here with my kids bro like mm-hmm and it's like you're not you're not doing any you're not intending to do any harm, but it's you know it's upsetting, and it's like yeah, that's just an unfortunate fact of life, in my opinion now. But mm. it's also something to appreciate. I I believe it's like yeah, like we can't just. I don't think you should just do what you want and not care what people think anymore. And so now it's like, well, how do we then create little subcultures in which we can do our weird stuff? And it's like okay, maybe I will wear some fitness training clothes when i go do my weird stuff in the park maybe i will do it sometimes just to help people feel comfortable it's like okay he's a bit weird mm. but look he's wearing fitness clothes maybe it's some fitness mm. kind of stuff or you know what i mean it's like create environments where we can do do our stuff a little bit more yeah i like that it's like becoming cognizant of the fact that you you live in a society. You're not separate to society. Yeah. So you know you can um, also use that uh, to to harness and not yeah not not scare other people off and make it make it more approachable as well to, to right. what you're doing because ultimately you know 
we're trying to share this good stuff that we're yeah. um practicing as well which yeah. um sort of gets me to switch gears to where uh, I want to um talk about your um movement camps that you create you know you talk about subcultures and creating the the, the subcultures where these things can tr- thrive in and recently yeah i had the pleasure of um joining one of your movement camps earlier this year in southern new south wales which was like to be frank just um a wonderful wonderful experience um so i wanted to just uh maybe first that you can just introduce you know like what what are the movement camps that you run you know how long have you been running them sort of uh what in your eyes, what's like the sort of main intentions and ideas that you try to manifest when you hold these like movement camps? Mm. Well, um, we started doing them about 10, maybe more than 10 years ago now. Um, started running them with my, my dear friend, Craig Mallet, who, um, I believe you've met. Mm -hmm. Um, so Craig and I, we met on a uh, online internal martial arts forum back in the day uh, where I think Craig was living in Australia. I think I was living in Shanghai at the time, but um, I was studying this martial art called Xinyi Liu Hertran, six um, heart, mind, six harmonies, fist um, in Shanghai where it's quite prevalent and, um, and Craig was back in Australia and he was learning Shinyi Liu Hertran in Canberra. And I was like, and I was, you know, from Canberra. Yep. And so on this forum, it was called um, Empty Flower. And then uh, during a period of intense politics on the Empty Flower forum, it split and became the rum-soaked fist um, <laughs> named after our, our Dominican friend, Felipe. Um, anyway, Craig was in Canberra studying um studying Shinyi Liu Her, and I was like, wow, that's cool. And so we became online friends. And then when I returned to Australia um, from China back to Canberra, you know, met up with Craig and, mm-hmm. you know, messed around in the park and didn't get the cops called on us. Um, it's because you're two, so it's okay. Yeah, because there were two of us, exactly, and we didn't have weapons, so, yep. Yep. you know, it was all good. But, um, and then, um, yeah, Craig moved to Melbourne and, um then when he came back to no, then I moved to Melbourne actually, and um, then when I moved back from Melbourne, um, I said you know I was and Craig had been studying MoveNat now and was running some little MoveNat classes and these sorts of things and I was like hey should we should we get together and start teaching classes together and just call it natural movement so we can do whatever we want, mm-hmm. um, and Craig was like hell yeah let's do that. Um, and so we started teaching classes together several times a week and, um, you know, we'd, we'd run classes together twice a week and then Craig would teach a couple of his own classes and I'd teach a couple of my own classes and um, almost all outdoor training. And um, it created a bit of a, a bit of a buzz because no one was doing this stuff back then, you know, mm-hmm. um, no one was doing natural movement of any, you know, and so it was all like new to people. It's like, wow, you guys are just doing whatever you want. And like, making stuff up and bouncing ideas off each other. And it was really, really fun. And then um, Craig had a friend at his work who had a a property out in Araluan and we, you know, they'd go there for weekends and stuff. And, um, and 
Craig was like, hey, I want to run a retreat. Let's start doing these retreats four times a year. Um, and so we went out and Hamish was like, oh, yeah, go around that side of the property. I reckon there'll be a good spot for you. And um, we're like, awesome. And we just started. We're like, let's start it. Let's do these retreats. And um, initially it was just like a little local practice group from Canberra. Um, and so I think on the first retreat, there were eight of us. Mm-hmm. And then we did summer, autumn, winter, spring from then on and gradually started getting in. And, you know, we would just, we would go and we would have no schedule and we would just rock up and we would just train. And back in those days, you know, 10 or 12 years ago or whatever, we're all a bit younger than we are now and um, didn't have kids and stuff. And like, we were just like, train hard hard out hard out and they were shorter retreats too so like four days and stuff and we're just Mm. like we built it we built a jungle gym we're doing all sorts of training mixing up our kung fu with wrestling with like parkour move nap these sorts of things and then um i invited my my good friend uh jake kassar who um is a he's from the central coast and he's a bush tucker animal tracking absolute master incredibly interesting guy um we brought him along as a guest teacher and it was incredible and then i invited my friend colin sneesby up to canberra to teach us colin's another incredible guy from melbourne do you know colin man you should you should get to know colin colin's amazing he's um he's been around forever and he's like um these days he's doing lots of fighting monkey and, and those sorts of things but he's got a massive long background as a trainer and working with old people and working with Mm. like um you know troubled youth and refugee populations and all these sorts of things teaching boxing and filipino martial arts and personal training and kettlebells but he's got a background in physical theater mm-hmm. and i found found out about him because he did a um he spent a year studying with this guy uh learning chimpanzee movement for a theater piece yeah so I, as soon as i heard about him i was like man i gotta meet this guy and you know brought him up to our canberra crew and he was teaching us chimpanzee movement and filipino martial arts and he came as guest teacher on retreat and then we just sort of hit on this thing of like oh cool like if we go and we do our movement practice in the bush and we get different guest teachers each time and we learn a bit of bush tucker and survival skills and just get to know the place better it'll be really fun mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know and um and so it just kind of organically grew. And then Craig moved overseas um, to become a Taoist. Um, and I just kept running the camps. And um, gradually over time, you know, it expanded out of our just local Canberra practice group and people started coming from around the place. People started coming from different places. And our Natural Movement Canberra group was um, during the sort of peak Facebook time it was actually this really big international popular well-known facebook group of people from all over the world going oh these guys are doing really cool stuff these guys are doing really cool stuff mm. like not realizing that in reality it would just be like six canberra people balancing on a log in the rain on a tuesday night you know what i mean like <laughs> not glamorous at all but like they'd see our retreats and go oh cool 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 and so it started becoming this thing where like people would start coming from around australia to our camps and um and um you know we've had a over it's over 10 years we've had so many amazing guest teachers of everything from like contact improv to 
animal tracking to, you know, like making stone tools or clowning or acrobatics or, um, you know, all these different movement practices and things. So, and then, you know, getting people coming from overseas and things. And, and so it's just kind of, it's kind of grown itself, which is the really wonderful thing. You know, it's like, so we've got people on every camp. We probably have about a third of the people have come many, many times over many years. And then another third are coming for the second or third time. Mm -hmm. And then another third are coming for the first time. And so within the group, there are people who like, you know, we've had people come and teach high tanning. And so then within the group, like I'm, I'm a rubbish high tanner. I don't have the patience for it or the, or the spare energy for it. I don't know if you've ever done it, man, but one day we'll give right. you a, we'll give you a hide and you can just spend the whole time just working this hide for hours. Give me the crash course. <laughs> oh, dude, you'll realize like, you know, you think you're, you think you're strong or have any sort of endurance and then you try and tan hide. It's like, <laughs> Oh my God, this is so hard. But you know, a couple of people, one or two people will take on that thing from that one guest teacher. Mm -hmm. And the guest teacher might never come back, but these one or two people have taken on that skill and like weaving, basket weaving and bush tucker and all these sort of things. So within the group, it's really amazing within the group. It's like, you know, I've dabbled in all these things and everyone's dabbled in all these things. But every time there's one or two people who really take something on from the guest teachers. And so it's actually become this, um, this beautiful environment where of like skill sharing if you know what I mean, it's like I teach a lot of stuff on the retreats and we've been going to this one beautiful spot in the national, on the edge of the national park in the South coast forest, New South Wales. And so we've got this, this sort of little mini culture of like, we go to this place, we turn off the clocks, we don't have a fixed schedule and we do practices, which like get us deeper and deeper and deeper in touch with our bodies and deeper and deeper and deeper in touch with all the elements of the landscape, the rocks and the river and the animals and the the plants. And then we're learning from each other. Like it, every, I'm, I'm sure you experienced it when you were there. Like everyone who comes to these camps is like a, a real like deep practitioner of something. Mm -hmm. And so it's supposed it started off as a movement camp, but it's like, you know, we've had people there teaching like, nature art like how to make paints from rock and how to make paper from plants and you know and ceramics and primitive pottery and so it's like doing all these all these skills and crafts yeah it's just become it's it's just become you know so it's it's not so much that i had a vision that this was how i wanted it to be mm -hmm. it's just that that's how it just started happening by itself and so i love going like we get guest, guest teachers in so i get to be a student as much as every anyone else and um yeah it's kind of it just kind of became this self-organized magical magical little little event down there um and then we had to take a couple of years off with bushfires we got completely smashed and then covid hit and then we had a baby and for a little while my partner jen and i were like scared that that was just going to be something that we used to do mm -hmm. you know and then we kept doing it and now it's like you know now there's more kids in the mix as well and so it's um yeah it's like i feel like there's nothing like it um and so we can't stop we have to keep doing it
Um, yes, you do, Simon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, it's that thing, right? It's like, yeah, there's movement practice, which is amazing. And there's meditation practice, which is amazing. And there's like survival skills camps, which are amazing. And we kind of do a mix of all of those things. And like, I feel like that mix goes really deep, you know, like movement practice is wonderful, but then like movement practice in nature and that spot where we do it is particularly good because you can actually be in the forest hmm. and it's a really gentle forest. So it's not a horrible spiky forest full of ticks and mosquitoes and, and thorns. It's like, it's really gentle, hmm. beautiful forest. And so you can do all your movement practices there. You can do all these things. And, um, like the survival, we, we help out at our friends' survival skills camps all the time. And it's, and it's amazing, but like survival skills without the movement practice. And then with the combination of external movement practice and internal, like meditative breath awareness and all those sorts of movement practices, like by doing the body stuff, it's like, it, I feel like it really helps us go deeper into the nature stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's not just engaging with nature with the eyes and with the ears and things. It's like really getting um, getting deep into like this mystery. It's very mysterious, right? When you really start getting into it and you start, you know, doing the contemplations and things we do where you're looking at water and you're looking at teeny tiny plants and you're reflecting on physiology and evolution and like feeling like, what a mystery it is to be in this fleshy, squishy body made of water and like, like little tendrils of blood, blood vessels and growing and decomposing and, you know, um, engaging really, really, really engaging with the natural world and with the body. Um, it just really, um, yeah, it's just this, this profound sense of like belonging in the natural world and also there's this timeless quality this timeless quality to it this sense that we've that we've been here forever and it's not necessarily like oh there's like answers or there's right ways to do things it's just like yeah it's just really beautiful out there man we're so lucky in this country to have it, it is it is such incredible nature to do things in yeah yeah, I want to kind of set the context for people of, you know, just how beautiful the setting is because you take about an hour, uh, over an hour drive from, from the nearest town down this mountain road through these, through this valley. Um, and then in this valley, you've got this spot there just by, beside this beautiful river in between the mountains. And then you're in the forest there where we're all set up. And as you said, it's like, quite gentle and welcoming as well so it's just um and you, you can't hear any cars or anything like that there's no like sign of human technology anywhere as well and one thing i remember that yeah just really struck with me was like that we we didn't have the presence of time there i remember you told us just gently on the first day to turn off our phones, put away any sort of clocks. Uh, I remember you kind of laughed. You're saying, oh, if you, if you did need to check the time, just, you know, 
just do it sneakily and don't tell anyone else if you really, you know, had, if you crumbled, <laughs> uh, but, but you just for these, um, for that week, just to put it away. Uh, and yeah, I just felt this incredible freedom from that where we had these practices. I remember like the morning practice and I, I had no idea how long it went for. Sometimes it, it could have been for like, who knows, like three hours or whatever, but it just had no sense of, of time, but it was just really amazing because with that group of um, people there, we just had no other place to be except for there together practicing with each other. And I think that just really amplified this whole sense of, um, of engagement in the surroundings and in the practice that we were partaking in because we didn't have any place to go. We weren't going to rush off and, and do anything. And this sort of relates to where I wanted um, to have you speak a bit more on. You kept on saying when we were, um, we, we were, especially during the morning practice, um, when we were doing some forms of standing for us to let go of the mental fist, or you call it like the relaxing the mental fist, which mm. I, I really, really liked. And I've, I've taken that back here whenever I feel this anxiety or stress for whatever reason and go, okay, I can, let me relax the mental fist. So is this is that saying something that you've come up with because i in imagery that that is just really just makes a lot of sense to me in terms mm. of how we you know really clench something within the mind and we can't let it go but then we can just like let go of that fist and then just realize that it that it's okay so mm. yeah just wanted to hear your thoughts a bit yeah. more on that one yeah that's um that's such a good one. Um, I I got the term from a uh, a teacher of uh, Buddhist meditation in the Thai forest tradition. Um, Vimalaramsi is the guy's name, um, and um, so. Yeah, so my my background, like I I started, um, I did an exchange year to Thailand for a year when I was seventeen, and um, you know, lived with a Thai family and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and um, was practicing Muay Thai and boxing and learning about Buddhism. Um, and I did a like I was briefly ordained as a as a monk at the end of my time there and spent some time in this uh, forest monastery called Suan Mok in the South. And, um, you know, that's when I first started seriously practicing meditation. Um, and, um, so my meditation background begins, like my serious meditation background is, is all within this foundation of, um, the the Theravada like the Thai forest tradition particularly um and um you know I practiced for many years and I've done a lot of um other other forms of obviously like Taoist stuff and um yogic stuff and things and then um you know I did many Vipassana retreats within the Goenka 
tradition um, and absolutely love it. And, um, you know, when I like in later years, when I like I'd gone off and done all these other um, physical practices and done some really good yoga stuff within the, um, from, from my main teachers, the Mohan family who are students of Krishnamacharya. And then I went back and into the Vipassana and just had incredible next level experiences way beyond what I had um way beyond what I'd experienced in the past and I was like oh man like this is really interesting I want to start instead of just doing what Goenka tells or doing what this teacher tells I want to start reading the actual source texts you know and I can't speak Pali and I don't read Sanskrit but so I'll just read translations and commentaries by um serious practitioners and so started looking at um translations and commentaries of the Anapanasati Sutra, um, particularly, like obviously, you know, the Yoga Sutra and da, 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 but within the Buddhist tradition, the text which I've studied the most extensively is this text called the Anapanasati Sutra, which is the sutra on uh, mindfulness grounded in the in and out breath, mindfulness grounded in the inhalation and exhalation. And there are many excellent excellent commentaries of this amazing text it's just a 16 stage process based on the inhalation and exhalation and one of those texts and commentaries is by this guy Vimalaramsi mm. um and he in the initial introductory chapter um makes this wonderful suggestion where he's saying like yeah like okay the whole method of anapanasati is based on keep learning to get attention on the in making the breath the anchor for your attention noticing when you're breathing in noticing when you're breathing out and then noticing whether the breath's long whether the breath's short and then the, you know the next stage is like learning to feel the entirety of the in breath and the entirety of the out breath so developing continuous attention and then the next stage is learning to link the feeling of all of the in-breath and the full of all of the out-breath with a growing sense of ease. So making like calming, calming any bodily tensions that you feel all the way through inhalation, all the way through exhalation. And then it goes on from there. Mm -hmm. But Virmala Ramsey makes this wonderful point where he says that um, every time you notice your mind has wandered, of course, in all mindfulness practice, they say anytime you notice your mind has wandered, gently bring it back to the object of concentration, in this case, the breath. But Vimala Ramsey makes this wonderful point where he says, every time you notice your attention has wandered, firstly, notice that some tension has arisen in the head. He says, every time there is any flicker of mental activity, some tension arises in the head around the eyes around the face like if you really exaggerate it it's like a frown mm. if you really exaggerate it, it's like you're frowning and there's all this tension around the eyes and he says so we can think of this as like a clenching of the mental fist any sort of mental activity is associated with some tightening some increase of tension in the head and the face and the eyes which he says is like the, the clenching of the mental fist. And so if you're thinking really, really hard and thinking a lot and really hard, then the clenching of the mental fist is very, very tight. Mm -hmm. But even if you're just thinking a tiny bit, there's still some tightening of that mental fist. And so he says, he makes this wonderful suggestion. He says that, so in your mindfulness practice, whenever you notice that 
your attention has wandered somewhere from the object. Notice that there's been an, a slight tightening of this mental fist and then relax that mental fist and then bring the awareness, bring the attention back to the object. Mm. And he makes this wonderful point that by doing this, the relaxing of the mental fist is inherently pleasant. Just releasing tension from the face and from the eyes is pleasant. You always feel, every time you do it, you always feel a tiny bit better. Sometimes you feel way better. Sometimes it's like, oh, God, oh, oh. Oh, what a relief. Let go of some of that tension. But it's always a tiny bit better. So he says, this for many people, especially at the beginning of their mindfulness training, this is the key to making the practice feel good. Because now when the mind has wandered, when the attention has wandered, which it's going to do a lot, so much, especially in the beginning, your mind is wandering much more than it is focusing. And so usually in the beginning, what happens is your mind's just wandering all over the place. Mm. And every time you notice it's wandered, you beat yourself up. You go, damn it. I'm shit at this. Mm. Oh, I suck at this. Okay, bring my attention back to the thing. And then it's wandered again. Oh, I hate it. Oh, it sucks. Stop wandering and you fight it and you feel horrible and you feel really bad about it. And he says, whereas if you do this thing where it's like you notice the attention's wandered and then you get a reward. Oh, my mind's wandered. I get to relax that mental fist. Hey, that feels good. And then bring your attention back to the object. And mm. by doing this, you're creating a reward circuit. Hey, this is my language now, a reward circuit rather than a punishment circuit. Mm. Whereas before, every time you notice your mind had wandered, you beat yourself up a little bit and said, oh, you're not doing a good job. But now every time you notice the mind has wandered, you get a physical sensation of, ah, calming, gentle relaxation, releasing the mental fist. It's enjoyable. And then you bring your attention back to the object. And so in the initial stages of your meditation, it's like, okay, if you're just noticing inhalation and exhalation, and then it's like, oh, my mind's wandered. Oh, what am I doing again? Ah, release the mental fist. Okay, there's inhalation. And you get this one tiny little reward. But then as you move to like the next stage, like if the second stage is noticing how long and short the breath is, the third stage is noticing all of the physical sensations that happen during inhalation and all of the physical sensations that happen during exhalation. If you can get to that stage, then you start to have this experience of like relaxing the mental fist, relaxing the mental fist, relaxing the mental fist. It's like, oh, your mind flickers a tiny bit, you bring it back, it relaxes the mental fist until eventually if you can get to that third and fourth stage, you start to enter into this state where your mind, your your attention is flickering away in tiny flickers and back. And mm. after each tiny flicker, you've built in this circuit of releasing the mental fist and enjoying it. And so you get a flicker of distraction and then release the mental fist enjoy, and you get a little bit of enjoyment. Flicker of distraction and then enjoyment. Flicker of distraction and then relaxing the mental fist and enjoyment. And then by the time you get into that third or fourth stage, you start to have a constant flow, a constant flow of releasing tension from the face and the eyes. And your meditation becomes very, 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 very pleasant. Mm -hmm. Very pleasant. And so this, so I just, I just love that. It's like I'd already started because I'd been meditating for many years by the time I read this, I was already doing it, but then him tuning in on it and being like, Hey, 
this, do this, and it will help especially beginners make the meditation pleasant as quickly as possible. And then because of my neuroscience background, I was just like, this is just absolute genius where you just hardwire a genuinely pleasant body feeling reward with every time you get distracted and notice that you're and bring your thing back, then it's like, that's going to, instead of making meditation, this, this, uh, real frustrating battle, that's going to make you, that's going to naturally make your meditation pleasant right from the start and then get more and 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 more pleasant really quickly. Um, so even though that phrase just comes from this one guy in the Thai forest tradition, I've noticed that all of all, all good meditation teachers and all good meditation practitioners are all doing it. And within the Chinese, the Chinese traditions, again, um, you know, cause I teach it a lot in the, in the Qigong practice that we do. Um, all the good people are doing this. They're mm. all doing it. And you can totally see there's a particular kind of face that goes with these practices. Um, yeah. So I like to, sh I really like to share that. One thing I think I said um, during the retreat when you were there is that um, that releasing of tension from the face that 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 tension in the face and around the eyes and deep inside the head that a lot of that really deep tension in there is like often habitual tension associated with this character that we're playing mm. you know holding yourself in a particular tone of voice or always holding your face in a particular kind of shape and so learning to let go of that deep tension in the face and the head with a little bit of practice and experience as you get better at it, it starts to become a, a shedding of some of the really deep habitual tension that you're holding on to all the time as part of being playing the role of Phaon or playing the role of Simon. It's like, oh, Simon has this particular facial expression, which he always does. And Phaon has his, you know, and so learning to release that mental fist, it, um, we, we talk about it as releasing tension from the face and the eyes, but what it induces is a cascade of rel relaxing of deep tension all the way through all the deep parts of the body, not just the face and the eyes, but it's like a, it's like a shedding of holding patterns, habitual holding patterns mm. from the whole body. Yeah. It's magic, yeah. man. If people just take that one thing on and start meditating, mm -hmm. it's like, it can make a world of difference. Yeah, man. Uh, I've found that super, super useful for myself and even um, just sharing it a bit with some of my students as a, as a reminder and as a cue I've, I've seen. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's funny you mentioned that face. It's just kind of like this, it's kind of like half stupid, half, half smiling, half like happy, happy face that seems to arise. Um, it's the classic Buddha face, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is um, awesome to see. So yeah. Mm. Um, I think that's a really nice one to even share to the the listeners of this podcast as well. You know, it's just like should have it on a on a t shirt somewhere or something, just as a <laughs> yeah. as a reminder. But um, yeah, like when I was there, you know, for me the the morning practices that we all gathered as a group in particular were, I think, the most um, 
most powerful feeling, I think, just because I'm not sure what it was. Maybe it's just because the the majority the majority of the group was always there in the morning and then you know we had just risen it might have been the way that you structured it um with how you're guiding us through you know concepts such as this relaxation of the mental fist um and then i really enjoyed like these qigong practices that you took us through and then one uh idea that you were speaking about as well was this idea of um of silk reeling and um achieving like sort of this uh, smoothness in, in movement quality when we we're performing some of these, uh, you were taking us through like what seemed to be like a lot of like um, circles or, or lines of articulations of, of the body. And uh, to preface this, yeah, you were saying um, uh, how like these are, these are borrowed from like um, Chinese practices where they have these origins, which they call as, as silk reeling. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more on this idea of, of silk reeling, what, what it is. Cause I, I looked mm. it up afterwards when I got back and I was like, Oh, it's like an actual whole thing within all these like Chinese um, martial arts, uh, this, this silk reeling practice. Mm. And it was, it was, it was really awesome. But I, yeah, just wanted to hear, hear your take on it. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, in those morning sessions, uh, we were mostly doing um, a mixture of practices from this Taiji lineage called Hunyuan, uh, which comes from this teacher who who died uh, some years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, Feng Zhichang from Beijing. Um, and it's a Chen-style Taiji tradition. Uh, so yeah, tai, tai Chi for, for the Aussies out there, Tai Chi. <laughs> um, but uh, Feng Zhichang, he studied um, the Chen style of, of Taiji, but he also learned um, Qigong from a, a Taoist teacher. Um, and so I, I, I love the Hunyuan Qigong and the, um, as this, incredible system which it's like a, a so it's a qigong system which contains the taiji body method um and the taiji body method is the silk reeling so the the silk reeling idea or the taiji body method and this whole thing of internal martial arts in in chinese physical culture is this idea of um waking up all of the deepest parts of the body. So all of the hidden deep parts of the anatomy. So like the pelvic floor is one example, all of the deep muscles of the abdomen. So the deepest layer of the abdominal walls, the transverse abdominus and so on. And then all of the deep muscles between the ribs, all of the tiniest deep muscles along the very deepest ones next to the spine, um, for example, so all of the very, very deepest postural muscles throughout the whole body um, and the all of this practice, the silk reeling practice and so on, it's also referred to as body connection training. So we're specifically trying to feel into and wake up all the little muscle groups, all the tiny muscle groups which connect 
the body together rather than the bigger superficial muscles which are sort of more for big movements waking up all the tiny little muscles like hidden along the spine and and hidden deep within the joints and it's almost like um it's almost like a like if you think of a bike tire and you have the tire and then you have the inner tube so the the internal muscle system it's almost like you have a, a system like an inner tube which spans through the whole body and then layered over the top of that that inner tube you have all the superficial muscles um and so the the internal systems aim at waking up all of these deeper inner layers of muscle groups connecting them all together and then the idea is that when all of these inner muscle groups are active and alive and conscious that creates a scaffold upon which the superficial muscles can attain a an extraordinary degree of relaxation far beyond normal so the inner ones become really strong and really uh rubbery and flexible and sensitive and active and then the external muscle groups can become far 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 softer so they call it like steel wrapped in cotton and and it's not it's not unique to the Chinese martial arts at all. They just tune in on it and talk about it a lot. Mm. But if you encounter any good, any good physical practitioner, usually they're very relaxed. They're very relaxed and the body works as a unified whole. Mm. Yeah. So in these, in these internal martial arts traditions, they have these classic phrases like when one part moves, all parts move. The idea is if you lift your hand, you should have a wave of connected muscle engagement that goes all the way from the tips of your toes to the crown of your head to the tips of your fingers that supports the lifting of the arm. So the arm might be what you notice is moving, but the whole body is contributing to the movement of the arm. Um, so, and then there's all this interesting stuff where they talk about, it's like, yeah, it's not it's like, yes, we do this by engaging the deep muscle groups, but the tissues that we're aiming to stimulate with this training are not so much the muscles as the connective tissue. So the idea is that by training these things that pull the body together, then yes, those muscles will get stronger, but the tissue by through long, repetitive, continuous training, the connective tissue system of the body gets stimulated. And even though the, the muscles don't get bigger necessarily, the connective tissues gradually get stronger and stronger and stronger. And then that's, that's part of why if you encounter people who are really good at this stuff, which is 100% not me, if you encounter people who are really good at this stuff, they're, they're often not built in a spectacularly muscular fashion, hmm. but they have, they can display these very, very unusual movement skills where it's impossible to move them. You know, you try and move them and, it's really, really hard to move them and they can like sense your balance and unbalance you or throw you with very little muscular effort and all these sorts of things. So um, then the silk reeling, the silk reeling practice is this, um, this, it's this description of like, this is very difficult to, to, um, you know, so many of these things is like, Oh man, how do we talk about this in a, in a podcast? It's like <laughs> just using, 
just using language, but it's this um, using the quality of, of smoothness and, and so circles, uh, if it's circular, if all the movements are circular, then it's like there's a constant changing in the direction of force. If it's rising, if it's going upwards and forwards and downwards and backwards in a circle, like if you did it in a square, then it's like, okay, you go upwards and then there's one moment where it changes from upwards to forwards. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you do forwards and then there's one moment where it changes from forwards to downwards, finish downwards and then it changes to backwards. But if it's a circle, then in every moment, there's a change in the direction of force. And so then if you're learning to engage every part of your body and the direction of force is constantly changing moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, um, then you can work this silk reeling quality, which is a feeling of continuous pulling. So you're always being pulled. You're being pulled forwards, pulled upwards, pulled backwards, pulled forwards, pulled downwards. And, um, and it's like you're exploring how those forces connect through the body, like how the entire body is involved in moving the arms upwards. And then as that upwards is constantly shifting to forwards, how that is, how that shifting to forwards is, is working through the feet, through the ankles, through the knees, through the hips, through every part of the abdomen, through the ribs, through the whole spine, shoulders, the elbows, the wrists, the fingers, and then how the forwards shifting into downwards. How is that change of force shifting through the, you know, the feet, ankles, knees, hips, spine, ribs, arms, and so on. And, um, It's in some ways it's very similar to Feldenkrais training. I'm not sure if you've done any Feldenkrais practice, but if you haven't, you, mm. you should you should check it out if you get the chance. Where it's like the practice is an exploration of how movements connect through the joints. So you don't just so you and so you you move your arms in in a way that helps you feel. Like, okay, a certain movement, you can feel it in the wrist, but then you make that a little bit bigger and the movement through the wrist, you start to feel how the elbow starts to get involved. And then you make it a little bit bigger in the wrist and then the elbow are involved. And then you start to feel it in the shoulder. And then you make it a little bit bigger and you start to feel, okay, the wrist connecting to the elbow, connecting to the shoulder, connecting to the shoulder blade. And then you make it a little bit bigger and it goes through the wrist to the elbow, to the shoulder, to the shoulder blade. And then you feel the shoulder blade connecting to the rib cage. And then you start to feel, okay, eventually maybe you start to feel individual ribs opening and closing and then you feel the rib cage connecting to the spine you feel the spine connecting to the pelvis the pelvis connecting through the hips the hips connecting through the knees you know and so on and so it becomes an exploration of forces connecting from joint to joint mm -hmm. and then if you combine that with a relaxing of the superficial muscles and then you feel this engagement of the deeper muscles and then it's like okay well it makes sense that the tissue that would be trained by this exploration of movement connecting through the joints, which tissue is it stimulating? It's stimulating the connective tissue, you know? So um, that's, you know, and that's with the Qigong practice, what's really wonderful is you get this combination of movements, which gradually connect through more and more and more joints of the body until you eventually start to approach this goal of like as you 
raise the arms, you feel a wave of engagement go through all the joints of the toes, from the tips of the toes, through each knuckle of the toes, through all the hidden joints between the small bones of the feet, through the hidden joints and the small bones of the ankles, engaging through, you know, all the joints of the knees and the hips, and then through deep through the pelvic floor, literally eventually rippling through each segment of the spine, rippling through each of the 12 ribs on either side, out through the arms, and then rippling out through all the knuckles of the fingers. You get these waves of engagement move through the body, which are inherently very, very pleasant. This wave, this is another really interesting thing, is that smooth movement and smooth wave movement is inherently pleasant and increasingly pleasant the better you get at it, the more smooth mm. you get at it, and then the more clear those waves are through the body, the more pleasant they become. And so you get this combination of a, an increasingly detailed, smooth, pleasant wave going through all the hidden bits of the body, this wave of pleasant movement rippling through the body. And then that becomes linked in the Qigong with these waves of awareness, rippling, washing waves of awareness through the body and then washing waves of awareness through the environment outside the body, through the sky, mm -hmm. through the ground and so on. And so that's the real genius of the, um, of the Hunyuan Qigong system, in my opinion, is this linking of the silk reeling Taiji body method with the, the waves of awareness through the body and, and through the world. And it, um, it's wonderful for like, as you know, as the awareness moves through all these deep parts of the body, it's like that releasing of the mental fist. And, and you, if you start to realize it, it's like, Oh shit, I'm, I'm frowning. I'm scowling. I'm tensing in my eyes all the time. And I learned that I can release that. But then if you start to explore deep inside the rib cage and deep inside the abdomen and deep inside the pelvic floor and deep along the sides of the spine, all these very deep hidden areas, which we often initially can't feel very well, mm -hmm. that they are storehouses of all sorts of tension, which is often very much associated with our emotions. And so we start to get deeper and deeper and deeper into the body and the silk reeling movements take us deeper and deeper into these parts of the body where we're holding a lot of tension all the time associated with our emotional state and which is restricting our breathing in different ways or um, so on. So it's like, um, it's yet another body awareness practice, which just takes you out of just the realm of physical skill and into the realm of bodily tension associated with emotions and associated with mental activity and, you know, habitual thought loops. You know how you get in your habit. It's like you get a spare moment and mm -hmm. you start thinking about whatever your thing is. Maybe it's like your, your straddle press to handstand or, you know, or your yep. bank account or whatever it is. And you start to realize that your habitual thought loops mm -hmm. are also associated with these habitual tension patterns in the body, mm -hmm. which are just at a deeper layer than what you're used to feeling. And so these Chinese, the silk reeling practice and, and so on. It's another, it's another realm that takes us into like out of just the realm of physical performance and into the realm of um, mind body, you know, the, the bodily aspects associated with, with the mind and then the mental aspects associated with these tension patterns in the body. Super, super interesting. And then from ancestral movement perspective, it's like, guess what? 
learning to move those deeper areas of the body, those deeper areas of the body that connect through the body, they always manifest in wave movement. Mm. And wave movement is how all the other animals all move. It's all through undulations and waves rippling through the center of the body. And all the other animals are super, super, super relaxed. And they're all moving in these ways, which are reminiscent of some of the internal martial arts. And so it's like you get into this stuff and it's like you get into wave movement in the spine and you discover your mammal body, you discover your fish spine, you discover your, your, you know, your, your reptile undulation. It's like, there's a big difference between doing a, an external lizard crawl, which is an amazing practice. But then if you, if you are able to learn a lizard crawl, but you've, you've worked on segmental spinal movement, rippling all the way through the deep parts and through all the deep parts of the rib cage. And then it, it takes your, it takes your body awareness deeper into deeper layers of your body. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So man, it's like, you keep picking these things. It's like, Oh dear God, silk reeling and internal martial arts. It's like, as you say, if you look that up, it's like, there's, um, they're not just deep topics. They're deep topics that people love to argue about, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, that is not the correct way. Um, but, uh, it's super cool stuff. It's super cool stuff mm. for any like people who do movement practice. Like, you know, I love doing non-traditional movement practice and I really advocate non-traditional movement practice, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's like, for any of us, like there are certain traditions, it doesn't matter what it is, like boxing mm -hmm. or judo or anything, but it's like I love being a generalist and doing all these different things, but also I love just, man, it's just like pick pick a couple and find one that resonates with you, completely culturally specific you know, whatever, but like just these deep traditions where it's like, you can go in and it's like, Oh wow. It's like, Holy shit. There's real depth here, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, I've been lucky enough to find that in, in several traditions and the Chinese, the Chinese stuff is super, super, super deep. There's no, there's no way to do it, to do it justice in a, in a short conversation, but it's like, they go, just like yoga, but mm -hmm. they go deep into the mind body phenomenon. And you start to realize this whole thing of like every flicker of the mind is associated with flickers of tension in the body. And even just this realization that like, it's possible to feel the body to a degree far, far, far beyond what you initially think might be possible. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of that also has to do with like relaxation to a degree, which is just, you don't, you don't encounter it in a regular Australian society, for example, you know what I mean? It's like, this stuff is like, it's like, it's possible to, it's like, we thought we talk about relaxing, but it's like relaxation can be taken to a degree so far beyond what we normally think of. And it's not a floppy it's not a floppy relaxation. It's a relaxation which involves fully engaging the deeper parts of the body. This is kind of the point is like 
to really deeply, to really fully relax, you have to actually really fully switch on. Mm. Otherwise, you react, you relax to a surface amount, and then you just become dull and sleepy and bored. Yep. And so, to really take your relaxation beyond that, you need to actually become hyper alert, hyper awake, and then you can become hyper relaxed. Mm-hmm. And to really relax the the body, it's like the insides of the body need to become really switched on and really alive and really aware, and then the body can become incredibly relaxed. Um, And it just feels, it just feels that's, that's the thing with this internal martial arts is like a lot of people go, oh, but it's rubbish for martial arts. And like, honestly, it's like for learning to fight, it's rubbish. It's like, it could help if you're a good wrestler already, Yeah. then sure it can help. Like, absolutely. Some of the, I've met incredible practitioners of these things who were, who did have really good martial skill, but mostly I think what goes with the internal martial arts is like, you start doing it. And after a certain point you go, holy shit, this feels good this feels so good. And then you meet really good practitioners and you're like, man, that person is just experiencing so much pleasure in their body. Like it's almost like, it's almost offensive. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there. Yeah. 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 It's very cool. Um, and I think, yeah, just for the listeners, even if they just look up like, yeah, as I did, like the concept of silk ruling, I think there's a there's a lot um, one can gain even just from reading and um, just having a, a superficial understanding of, of that concept as a, as a movement quality to go and explore. I think it opens up a very interesting mm. interesting doorway. So mm. I do have to thank you for that one, Simon, for introducing yeah, and opening that door for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I was just wondering. Um, just as a final area to explore is this um uh, on this area so other, other than the um the morning practices where um which we were engaged with like all throughout the day uh yeah i mean we did such a myriad of of different things um i remember even doing that 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 barefoot um running and and walking technique was uh, was really interesting and funny as well but uh uh there was uh, other scenarios that um, you created. I remember when we were working together um, with partners and this was in certain, uh, I think, yeah, you were teaching like wrestling. Um, mm-hmm. And what I noticed was in your instructions when you were layering on this partner work, especially where um Normally, like with a lot of partner work, sometimes we're like uh, very cooperative and maybe like to the point of like being too co- cooperative with 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 the partner. And you set up like quite um, interesting competitive contexts where, say, we were uh, I think we were doing um, some sort of arm wrestling drill where we're trying to get in underneath the other person's arm and not be held in a, in a locked position. And you kind of staged the uh the movement task in a way where when we built up to that competitive game when you were trying to go for the win which was to get like your both your hands locked around the the partner that kind of exposed you in a way to them sliding under your arms and then getting the win themselves so you had to think very strategically in terms of okay like how could i 
outmaneuver, outstrategize my my partner to actually get this win condition set up by by this game. But then by going for that win, it kind of also opens me up to the um the possibility of of defeat. Um, just by if I was to go go for the win in a certain way or go for the win in this uh, aggressive sort of manner. So I had to be smart about it. And I just wanted to ask you a bit more about how what. What, what how do you think about structuring yeah movement tasks and games um because what i noticed is with that it became uh i had the possibility of becoming like an infinite game because mm. there was so many ways to go about it and because uh both players could win but then when you're trying to go for the for the win in certain ways then it it increased your chances of defeat in a certain way as well so mm. i was just wondering with uh, how you selectively choose, how you structure things, how, how do you think about that? Mm. Yeah, that's um, like the whole thing of like game based learning is um, is something I'm really into, um, and part of it comes from you know again like. spending many years learning traditional martial arts and then realizing after many years that like this idea that one day in the future, we were all going to start sparring, realizing that was actually never going to happen. It's like all these teachers were like, yeah, yeah. In a, in a few years, you guys will be like sparring and doing all this stuff and it'll be free form and you'll learn like real fighting skills and blah, blah, blah. And then realizing, hang on, man, like it's been years <laughs> and that's just not happening. And like, you know, so I love all my training and then I was just like, man, I'm just craving physical contact. And it's like, I had a little background in boxing and Muay Thai and Judo. And so I was just like, like, fuck it. I just need to get myself to wrestling, to a wrestling gym and start wrestling with wrestlers. And it was like, holy shit. Like, you know, this is, this is awesome. And it's like all just like body to body and like, you know, just craving that contact um, and then taking up jujitsu and, and whatever but also having a capoeira background and capoeiras, particularly capoeira Angola again, sorry, Fayon, <laughs> but, but the thing about, no, not, not no. saying it's better, but I have played Angola as well. So, you know, just, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. just for the good, record. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just cause you're stronger than me. And so you can do acrobatic moves that I'll never be able to do. So I got to find something to pay you out about. But, um, but the wonderful thing about capoeira Angola is like playing really close together and creating games in which you're responding to each other in real time and that that and also in capoeira we have this wonderful thing where it's like it's cooperative and competitive we're helping each other get into the flow we're helping each other dodge and then we're trying to trick each other and then we're and then we're trying to get each other for real but we don't know when we don't know when our opponent is going to try and get us for real so we have to be on our guard but also we know that they're kind of on our side and so we can relax so we're helping each other get into this flow state or this state of really good learning where it's like if one partner is physically way more capable than the other and they just attack them then very little flow happens and very little very it's not interesting at all but if we learn to help each other so that we're timing our movements and telegraphing our movements clearly enough 
that our partner is able to dodge just in time. And then we we work each other out, we calibrate our our movements and our speeds and our amount of telegraphing, amount of like clearly showing I'm about to do this, I'm about to do that. We start to, as we tune into each other, then we start to be able to provide just the right amount of stimulus that gets the partner working right at their edge of their ability. So they're relaxed enough that they're performing well. Mm -hmm. If our partner is tense, they can't perform well. And if they can't perform well, then I don't get to do as well either. It's like, I mean, maybe if you like just leaping around and showing off, then sure you can do that. But if they're, they don't, if they're not doing well, they can't challenge me. You know what I mean? So I mm-hmm. want to help them relax enough that they can perform well because then they can challenge me. And then if they become sensitive as well, and they can be challenging me to a degree where I'm very relaxed, but I'm at the edge of my ability to respond well, then we both, we're at our edge and it's exciting and it's fun and it's really, really rewarding. And so capoeira is this wonderful example of an art in which the game is all about that. Initially, you think a good player is someone who can perform good movements. But if you play capoeira for a little while, you start to realize a good player is someone who's able to sync up, tune into their partner and help their partner perform better and then if both players are are adept at this art of syncing up with each other to help the partner perform better then it's like i'm helping you perform better to challenge me to help me perform better and then we then it's really fun and incredibly rewarding and lots and lots of research showing that's a massively amplified learning state Mm. in which we get better that's how you like if you work with a good coach whether it's anything, it could be table tennis, it could be cricket, it could be anything. A good coach often has this ability to do what they call feeding, where they feed, like a good boxing coach is able to feed, doing pad work, feed challenges to the athlete so that the athlete gets, they work, they can feel what's the edge of this athlete, this athlete's ability and get them working at their edge. So they're, they have to be really switched on in order to perform the task well, but they are able to perform it well, you know? Mm-hmm. And so because of that background with capoeira, like I've been really into applying that to jujitsu and wrestling and grappling. And I've discovered in wrestling, that's that's the standard way. Like most wrestling, what most wrestling that I've experienced in like wrestling gyms when I was training in Canberra, um, they do mostly game-based learning. Mm-hmm. And then um, a lot of jiu-jitsu schools, more and more and more and more and more are really doing game-based learning. So a lot of the guys I follow, like um, like Lucky Giles and, you know, all these people like um, – I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of of rugby anarchy and the BJJ concepts thing where it's like you take a concept and you create games out of it and then you use the games to develop the skill rather than learning techniques you try to create a concept and that concept might be um, you know good head position or like in like on the retreat what you're talking about like pummeling for double underhooks and so then the the real the real the real art when working with people is to try and create games that allow people of different skill levels to work at the edge of their ability in live training 
And so that's part of, again, even with grappling, and this is a bit of a challenge with grappling because people think, oh, it's wrestling, therefore it's competitive. Therefore I'm trying to win or I'm trying to not lose. But um, if you look at the way animals play, like if you look at how dogs play, mm -hmm. a dog that's poorly socialized will always try and win or will just lie down and not play. A dog that's poorly socialized will go to the beach and, and hold the other dogs down. Mm. But dogs that are well socialized, they take turns. I'm on the bottom. Now I'm on the top. Now I'm on the bottom. Now I'm on the top. You know, so they, they deliberately lose in order for it to keep being fun. Mm -hmm. And so um, in grappling, it's like if we can create little games where it's like you take a small enough thing that someone it's their first time but they can understand the concept and then you work on it in a way that it's like okay you start off it's cooperative enough but then you make it add a little element of winning and then you add another element of winning which like if someone's fixated on one element of winning they open themselves up to another like in grappling another example could be like you're you're pummeling and you're you're going for dominant head position but then you add the the snap down into a front headlock and the pickup into a single leg where it's like, okay, you're trying to pull someone's head down into a front headlock and they're lifting their head up to stop you doing that. And then that opens them up for a, a single leg. You jump in and you lift their mm -hmm. leg up um, and so on. So it's like, um, what I, what part of the, you know, part of the, the reason I like all these, all these ones, like these, all these partner exercises, whether it's contact improv or, or wrestling or capoeira, or even the um the silk reeling stuff that we were talking about before is that like all of these they they hone in on like the development of like movement intelligence or physical intelligence and sensitivity rather than just athleticism mm. you know what i mean like athleticism is incredible and awesome I think because most of the demographic that I work with they're not elite athletes I'm not training elite athletes to be you know, to get just that tiny bit better at their hundred meter sprint or anything like that. I'm training regular people. And so the development of sensitivity and intelligence is this, like, it's this base skill, mm -hmm. which makes us like better able to learn all sorts of things. And, um, and also better able to like fix our injuries, for example, if you're developing the skill of physical sensitivity and intelligence through exploration and play, then your rehab can be treated as exploration and play where you're tuning in. You're like, Ooh, how does it feel when I go in this direction or that direction or that direction? How does it feel when I add this much load versus a tiny bit more load or a tiny bit less load? And then if you're working with a partner, and you're feeling into yourself and going, oh, yeah, how fun is this for me? But you're also learning to feel and sense another person and go, what is the edge of their ability? Are they having fun? What Are they having more fun or less fun if I make it a little bit more intense? Hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's like it makes us better at healing our injuries. It makes us better training partners. There are some retreats where I go right from the start. I'm like, look, the whole or workshops, the whole thing I'm trying to teach here is how to be a better training partner because a good training partner in the form of a human being is just this precious, precious, precious thing. And like, there's not enough of us, you know what I mean? It's like where mm. you get a good training partner and it's like, man, like there's heaps of things where I know I could get so much better 
if I could just find a couple more good training partners, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like I go to jujitsu and it's like, oh man, I'm just getting smashed. And then it's like, and then well, a lot of women find this when they go to jujitsu and they roll with the guys and they're like, oh, they're either just smashing me or they just go like a limp noodle and let me win. And that's not fun either, mm. you know? So it's like, it makes us a better parent, right? It's like, man, if I can be sensitive to my child and challenge them enough while sensing and so on. So um, what's really interesting, I reckon, with the game-based learning in partner practice is that that's really what it tunes into is like, okay, how do I, so it's, it's a difficult, you know, you asked me, how do I structure it? It's like, well, start with the simplest building block and make a game out of it and then add one other simple game, one other simple building block and you can make a game out of that and then you combine the two games. You know, so if it was grappling, then it's like, okay, pummeling for underhooks and then you add battling for head position and then you add trying to take the back, Mm -hmm. which brings in arm drags and two-on-ones and wrist control. And then you add the snap down and the front headlock. And then you add the single leg pickup, you know, or if it was jujitsu, then it's like, okay, you, you're working on like um, guard passing and one person's just doing defense, but then you say, okay, now the person doing defense is allowed to make grips and do leg entanglements and unbalance the top person. So and then it's like, you've got guard passing guard defense, but now the bottom player is attacking as well with unbalancing and, and, and grip battling and, and so on. And so then, you know, you just use these limited games and mm. then you gradually complexify the games and then you go for free form. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think people call it, some people call it the ecological learning method. If you want to look up, like I don't have, uh, you know, you're a parent as well. So I don't have time to do as much research as I used to, but um, ecological methods for like for learning skills um mm-hmm. there's a there's a huge and growing literature and it's like it's actually a really exciting time in movement practice man it's like you know like i was saying 10 years ago no one was doing this stuff and if i did any movement practice outside people would think i was weird and the cops would come but now it's like heaps of people are doing these things and this ecological game-based constraints-based um pedagogy like teaching is really massively massively growing and becoming normalized and so i think it means we're gonna continue to see an explosion of like awesome skill development and awesome like teaching methods which will be applicable not just to adults but also to like kids physical education and those sorts of things and so hopefully you know start to produce a another generation or two of humans who aren't quite as physically incompetent as as my generation Mm. <laughs> well, yeah I, I hope so yeah uh, I, I, I mean I, I guess it's up to people like us and those who are listening yeah. right to um yeah. for, forward the culture on and to yeah. to help change it as well yeah. but um yeah I definitely uh, am, am feeling at that as well and, yeah I've, I've heard yeah. of that sort of like ecological constraints um method I yeah. haven't looked too deeply into it but um yeah, uh, maybe after this one, uh, I will now. Um, but yeah, that's definitely have you, something. Have you joined a um? Have you joined a grappling gym yet, Fion? I have not joined a grappling gym yet. I have to uh, see where's the the time 
to make the space for for grappling. Yeah, yeah it's I'd probably have to put pause on on capoeira to to do that. And at this moment, I I can't I can't do that yeah. at that at this time. So yeah, yeah. I just resign myself to being mediocre at everything I do, so that I can do lots of things. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you have to go in like certain sort of uh phases, right? And and hopefully like a have like sort of these intense phases to just bat- batch things up to yeah to um have little little taste testers of all these interests that you've wanted to um dive into over the years yeah yeah, yeah. but um simon i've got to um wrap this up uh because i've got to head off but it's been wonderful talking with you uh yeah we went through a lot in this chat um and I'm looking forward to when we can practice together once again. I'm not sure when it will be, but I'd love mm. to come to another movement camp or at some stage, you know, come up north. Uh, I know you say so just for the listeners out there, what you're based in Malambimbi and you also yeah. hold regular um, classes throughout the week up in the northern New South Wales, Australia area. Yeah. Um, yeah. But otherwise, I guess for... Yeah, anyone listening, if they are interested in joining, say, like these um, movement camps, do you just want to give a, a, a bit more details of how they can get in touch and what you got planned over the next year? Yeah, sure. Um, we've got um, – so we're still doing the camps down in, in southern New South Wales. Um, we're doing them twice a year now, uh, not four times a year anymore because we've moved up north. So we've got um, another round of camps happening in October um in Araluan, two camps back to back. And then the next round after that will be um autumn next year. So we're doing spring and autumn down there. Um because we got yeah the getting smashed by the bushfires a few summers ago was pretty pretty scary for you know as everyone I'm sure will remember. Um and then um yeah so two camps coming up in October. If anyone wants to find me you can just look up ancestral movement whether it's instagram or facebook or um my website's back up it got um it got hacked during an update not long ago and then i that's back uh, up yeah last time getting it back online last time i checked it was it was down so yeah yeah it was taking it it was taking it (laughs) to like some like trymyluck.com gambling site or something (laughs) um but so that's that's fixed. Um, but yeah, web, website needs a bit of an update. But yeah, you can find me through them um, and get in touch. And then, yeah, like, you know, I travel and, and teach workshops. Um, I used to do it a lot more, but now um, I've kind of pulled everything back since having a since having a child and, and not traveling so much anymore. But, you know, I need to make it down to Melbourne. It's been it's been years since I was down in Melbourne and I've got so much. You do. Really, Please so do. Really, really a good crew down there so i'll i'll try and make it down um sometime in the next few months but yeah on the cards we've got retreats in october and then um a workshop or two in the sunshine coast and around the bellingen area coming up pretty soon as well which i haven't um officially announced but yeah they'll be coming up before the end of the year too so yeah Awesome. Get in, get in touch, come along, do some stuff, especially local Northern Rivers people come up anytime and mm-hmm. do some training. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, I also recommend 
to dig through your YouTube channel as well. You know, you've got a fair few videos on there, which um, I've watched through and yeah, they're good little pockets of topics mm. of things that you dive into, which are, are really interesting. And I think people will get a lot out of. Mm. Um, yeah. I haven't put anything up on YouTube for many years now. It's funny. Like I got, it's the same with the blog. Like there's some blogs on my, on my website where it's like, you know, eight years or so, 10 years or so ago, I started writing a bunch of stuff and like I wrote a bunch of things which I thought were really important, which no one else is talking about, like linking mm. the, like the neuroscience with the evolutionary biology, with the movement practices and put out a few YouTube videos and things. But um, since, um, yeah, it's funny living up in Northern New South Wales and like having like non-functioning internet and having a, having a kid and things. It's like, I just, um, I stripped back a lot of my online stuff to focus on working in person, which is, um, you know, it's, I just find it, I personally find it way more rewarding working in person, but I also love um, connecting with people around the world and around Australia. And, and I've done a lot of that through the, through the website, the Facebook group, Ancestral Movement and our local group, Ancestral Movement, Mullumbimby. Um, so yeah, I'm going to try and make that a bit more of a priority to, um, to put up some more things on my youtube channel and to put a few more things on my blog so i'm glad you still like those old ones found but i'm sort of like oh man what was <laughs> i saying eight, eight years ago I hope, I hope it's not all just wrong and i probably no, disagree it's... with most of what i said back then it's good stuff still simon you know yeah. uh even though your perspective might have shifted and then you know you're always critical of a past self right but it, you yeah know, uh yeah at least for myself, I, I get a lot out of it and I reference that material. So don't take that oh, down cool, and man. just keep on yeah, nice. building on that library. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Uh, so, yeah, Simon, once again, thanks for um, joining us. Uh, I think, yeah, every time I speak with you, it always opens up my mind to the possibility of of, of what is mm. and an appreciation of this sense of, of wonder, of this technology that we embody and that we experience every day through this vessel. And I, I always laugh a little bit when you describe it as like this, this squishy water bag that, you know, that we kind of inhabit because if you take like, I guess a literal meaning, it, it is like, like that, that's what we are, but mm. that's not how we actually experience it. So um, yeah. I'm looking forward to listening back over to this chat once again. It takes me back to the feelings that I experienced um, in that movement retreat, which, uh, mm. yeah, I've still been contemplating on um, even what it's been like quite a few months past mm. since since that since that trip. Um, and just looking forward to the next time when we connect and I get to uh, practice together. Nice one, man. Me too. We're finished. That was episode 82 with Simon Takor. Really hope you appreciated that one, guys. I got a lot out of it. Always wonderful talking and connecting with Simon. Once again, if you ever have the chance to learn from him, I really urge you to take that opportunity and seek him out. So uh, check out his details once again on his website. That's ancestralmovement.com and I think he posts updates also in his Instagram. You can find that as the same thing as well, at Ancestral Movement. Otherwise, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I know it's been few and far between in recent times with the podcasts. They will come back, 
but I'm also just juggling and making space for other things in my life at the moment, such as also trying to cultivate a few more students and then also other work commitments. So keep in there, but the passion still resides. I'm still practicing away, still trying to connect with as many people as possible. So if you do want to connect or ask a question, even recommend a guest teacher, then please feel free to reach out to me. You can find my details on Instagram. That's at Fayonp, at P-H-A-O-N-P, or you can jump over to the website. That's at thepassivehang.com. Okay, that's it. I will see you next time.